0: tones of someone who loves history, humanity and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable. So I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s and part of that Hannah named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD. So brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, H.D. fills her sweet spare time with space. Space is big. I could get Douglas Adams or Star Trek about it, but they did it better, so I'll just say it has loomed throughout human history, and a lot of people looked up at it and got curious, including me. Space is full of beautiful things that I don't understand yet, uh, but I really, really want to understand them. Welcome to the first episode of HD in the Void, Space Edition, a podcast I make because I like a lot of things, and I am very sad when I don't have projects. I've decided to pick an interest that I have a lot of resources for and not enough experience with, and that thing is outer space. I'll stick with space research for a year, maybe more, if I still feel like I didn't learn enough or if I didn't get through all of the many, many books I have um, piled on my shelf that I've never even started about space. But um, I'll be delving into whatever strikes my fancy when it comes to this, you know, admittedly very vast topic. Not just things about space that we already know, I want to be clear, but things that um, I want to know more about just in general. That includes people who have increased our knowledge about space throughout history, some of the tactics and practices that folks use to explore it. I also kind of want to highlight people who contributed to space knowledge that I don't know about. Programmers and computers, engineers, clothing designers, linguists, nerds from all walks of life. I don't like math much, but I like learning everything else, and I want to share it with people, but in a way where they can choose to hear my space lectures. I'm not subjecting them to it. And maybe you'll get to hear some of my space nightmares. I'm a very vivid dreamer, and I have weird dreams about space sometimes. Um, I don't know what it means yet, but, you know, I'm sure someone could tell me. <laughs> there are links to this episode's transcript in the podcast post here at all one word, void fillthevoid- dash with space com, along with my research sources and maybe some cool pictures to enhance your enjoyment of this truly epic project of mine. It's epic because, you know, I'm taking on space. It's a pretty epic concept. <laughs> so, to get into it, um, I'm starting kind of at the beginning. Um, we can start with the Big Bang for right now because it's, you know, the beginning of everything. It kicked off our known universe and started its expansion, which hasn't stopped, by the way. We can still hear the Big Bang and the cosmic microwave background radiation that's hung around. It's actually visible with radio telescopes, but also back when TVs had rabbit ears and movies were on VHS, you'd get static or noise, those uh, random black and white channels, between channels. A teeny portion of that static, like 1%, was cosmic background radiation. The sound, the and the, um, and the snow on the screen is, according to NASA, quote, the afterglow of the Big Bang. Um, NASA uh, stands for the National Aeronautics and Space Association, which I actually didn't know. I've always just known them as NASA. They sent out a probe in 2001 to, quote, make fundamental measurements of cosmology, the study of the properties of our universe as a whole. That's a super useful definition of cosmology, actually, so let's hold on to that one. Anyway, the probe was the Wilkinson Microwave Anistropy Probe, the WMAP, and it helped narrow down the age and the makeup of the known universe. The NASA site says, quote, the universe is 13.8 billion years old, and the contents of the universe include 4.4% atoms, 22.4% of an unknown type of dark matter, and 73.2% of a mysterious dark energy, <laughs> which is an incredibly spooky way of putting it, NASA. Thank you for that. As far as I could find, we know what was going on in the 10 to the negative 43rd second of the Big Bang. That means there's 42 zeros after a decimal point and then a one. Listeners, space is full of unfathomable numbers, so we may as well start early with this one. (laughs) This is a ridiculously small amount of time for scientists to know what happened during the Big Bang. I mean, 13.8 billion years is pretty unfathomable, but in the opposite direction. Let's put it in perspective. You know how old you are when you've lived a billion seconds? you're like 32 and a half years old. No one in the world makes it to 13.8 billion seconds of life and we're talking years in terms of how old the universe is. On a slightly more manageable scale but still really really big, the Earth's 4.5 billion years old and Homo sapiens, which is our species of human, is only 200,000 years old. Anyway, that's a brief little timeline of the universe, the Earth, and Homo sapiens that oh-so-neatly segues us into what I really wanted to start us off with, the human element of outer space... eh, interaction, let's say. Human beings have known about space longer than they knew how to write, and some cultures never did develop a written language, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to be Eurocentric here and start with one of the earliest star catalogs we have. Now, a star catalog is different from a star chart or a star map. We have cave paintings of stars from the Lascaux caves. I, it's French. I'm so sorry. The Lascaux caves in France that are either 33,000 or 10,000 years old, which is a weirdly big range, but whatever. And there are Egyptian star charts from the 16th century BCE. That's all extremely ancient, and that's only the stuff that survived this long from back then. Humans all over the world have been, definitely been looking at the stars for as long as there have been human beings, and I can say this with confidence because the stars are an incredibly useful tool. They are a clear timekeeping device. You could set your watch by them, but I wouldn't because I live in Portland, Oregon, and never see the stars except when I'm very lucky and it's not raining. But you can definitely plan your planting and harvesting schedule by it. Back when humans were nomadic, predicting the seasons would help you know when to move to warmer climates. Constellations appear and disappear depending on the season, so you could determine what time of year it was if you saw Orion versus... Shit. Um, He's the only constellation I can find with any accuracy. Ursa Major, uh, the Big Dipper, yeah. uh, That's a pretty big one. So if you could see Orion versus the Big Dipper. Nomadic humans also could return to the same places because you could use the stars to navigate. Even before humans developed navigational instruments like the sextant, all you had to do was know the North Star, and then you'd know which way was north. I'm thinking about that scene in Moana where she navigates with the stars, uh, and she, like, holds her hand up, and, yeah. That was really kind of an example of that in an extremely good movie. (laughs) So people had star charts and an oral tradition of constellation names and stories about the heroes that appeared in the sky and all of that. But the first written record, well, we could start with Ptolemy's Almagest, uh, or Almagest, uh, which forms the basis of the Western Zodiac that you probably already know if you know astrology things about, like, ten things Libras love or why you shouldn't date a cancer. But there was an even earlier recorded star chart that informed the Greek Almagest, and that was the star chart MUL.APIN, apin which is from Mesopotamia. It was carved onto two tablets around 650 BCE, but the information recorded is probably from as early as 1000 BCE. The name of the chart comes from the first star on the first tablet. Muo means star, and Appen is plow, so it's the plow star. Now this sounded to me like it was the, another name for some star in the constellation Ursa Major, because one of the many, many names that Ursa Major has held throughout various traditions is the plow but it wasn't that, and then I thought it was maybe the north star, but it wasn't that. It was actually a star that's in the constellation Triangulum. I have to admit, I ended up going down a really big rabbit hole with this star. Uh, It has a lot of history. Ptolemy listed it in his star catalog in the 2nd century CE, as did Johann Baer in the 16th century and John Flamsteed in the 17th with their own respective star catalogs. Star cataloging has a rich, rich history, folks. The constellation triangulum is a group of three stars that make an isosceles triangle. And I have to say, looking into it raised a lot of questions that I actually want to answer about star classifications at a later podcast. I wish I could draw you the isosceles triangle shape and map it out, but it's this is not a visual medium. I'm sorry. Uh... So just try to picture, Um, the two base stars are white stars, designated as beta and gamma Trianguli, with the yellow white star alpha Trianguli as the point. Oh, and the constellation has a couple galaxies in it, including a double star system and uh, three star systems that have planets in them. And the first ever observed and recognized quasar happened in Triangulum in the 1960s. So Triangulum is a super cool constellation, and it definitely deserved to be the first in MUL.APIN, though the Babylonians had a different reason for having it first. I don't know why it was first, but I'm sure they had a reason. <laughs> the whole first tablet of MUL.APIN is a list of constellations and star names, and then it lists when different constellations are rising at the same time as the sun is rising. The list of rising times is a star calendar, which the Greeks called a peripheigma that's a fun word to say. A parapigma was a way to determine the time of year based on when you could see a constellation in the east just before sunrise. This is called a heliacal rising time, by the way. I'm sorry, I took ancient Greek and Latin and I hung around the classics department at ton in college and I care a lot about words, so I'm going to go nuts with vocabulary. I'll try to keep a glossary in the show notes and a big up-to-date one on the site so you can check that if a word shows up that you're like, what does that mean? Because astronomy is full of those kind of words, and they all kind of, I don't know, some of them sound very similar, but they're describing totally different concepts. All right, back to Mool Appet. So the first tablet has the star and constellation catalog, a star calendar of heliacal risings, and then it goes into a list of pairs, describing what constellations are setting as other constellations rise. This is a useful addition to the parapigma, because if you can't see one horizon due to obstructions or cloud cover or something, maybe you check out the other horizon and then know what time of year it is based on what shit's going down over there. One other cool thing about Mool Appen's first tablet, it also told you when to stick an extra month into the calendar. So we have leap days in the world's current standardized secular calendar, aka the one we use in America which is a solar calendar of 365 days, except during the leap year, when it's 366. The Earth takes 365 days and about six hours to orbit the sun once. Those six hours add up and would throw off how our 12-month calendar relates to the seasons if we didn't add that extra leap day every four years. Over time, April would start to scooch over into summer more and more, but that leap day keeps it all in check. Folks who follow Islam use a lunar calendar for holidays and other events. That calendar is 12 months as well, but since it follows the moon's orbit around Earth, it's only 354 or 355 days, because the moon orbits the Earth faster than the Earth orbits the sun. This is why Muslim holidays don't coincide with the same months or seasons. Ramadan in summer is probably kind of rough, because you fast all day and the days are longer, but it shifts every year, so you can end up with Ramadan in the winter, and that's got to be a little easier since there's way less daylight to fast through. So that's an example of a solar calendar and a lunar calendar. Uh, The Babylonians had a lunisolar calendar. The Chinese, Hindu, and Jewish calendars are all lunisolar, which means they stick in leap months instead of leap days to keep their calendars in line with the seasons. There's two ways to track when to cram in that extra month. Some calendars track the seasons, and when things start to look a little wonky, um, they stick in a leap year, and those are called tropical years. What other lunisolar calendars do, and what the Babylonians did, was track the constellations. And the leap year that they stuck in whenever the constellations got too far off the season they were supposed to be in is called a sidereal year. Shit, this got away from Moab and immediately. Okay, so the way that the Babylonians tracked when to stick in a sidereal year was by tracking the constellation they called Mul Mul, or the stars, which is what we know as the Pleiades. If the Pleiades were visible on the first day of one month, which was a jaru, it was a normal year. If the Pleiades had a heliacal rising during the first day of the next month, simanu, then the year was a leap year and would have 13 months instead of 12 to get them back in line with the seasons. There's a note about it on that first tablet, and then the Babylonians kind of found their groove and began to follow 19-year cycles of 235 months, where they'd have 12 years that had 12 lunar months and 7 years that had 13 months. What's interesting to me is that this was a more regular calendar than the Greeks ever ended up developing, even though we give the Greeks a whole lot of credit for inventing a ton of stuff and um, delving into the mathematics of a ton of different things. The fact is that the Babylonians ascribed a whole lot of religious and political significance to astronomy, and the Greeks didn't have that. They obviously made their own amazing mathematics based astronomical discoveries, I'm not knocking them, but the Babylonians really got their shit together when it came to timekeeping with astronomy. It all comes down to what was on the second tablet in Wollapen. I talked a little earlier about astrology. It's distinct from astronomy. I know, again, they sound like similar words, but they're very different ways of approaching the study of the skies. My astronomy professor in college told us he kept getting invited to speak at astrology conferences, and he was not into that. Um, we can thank the Babylonians for the seed of our zodiac, though. The second tablet of Mu'appin is a list of omens associated with certain stars or constellations. It says shit like, if Jupiter is bright, rain and flood, and if the stars of the lion, and then something that we can't read, but if the lion constellation did that thing, then the king will be victorious wherever he goes. I should point out that unlike the astrology analysis that you used to be able to get with your morning newspaper, Babylonian astrology only cared about natural disasters and disasters that could befall the king. Ordinary people didn't warn omens in the sky, just the nation or the ruler. Also, the Babylonian Zodiac had 17 or 18 signs in it, depending if you read a Zodiac sign as the tail of the swallow or as the tails and the great swallow, two distinct constellations. It should be kind of obvious that not all of the Babylonian Zodiac signs correspond to the ones that the Greeks ended up taking to make the Zodiac we use today, since there's you know 17 or 18 in the Babylonian Zodiac and 12 in the one that we currently use. I'm going to gently refuse to read all 18, possibly 17 Babylonian signs and how they relate to constellations we recognize today because one, I don't speak Babylonian, even if it's transliterated from cuneiform to English-looking letters, and two, that's boring as hell. I will say that one constellation, Mul Suhur Mas, (laughs) who knows if I said that right, uh, corresponds to the Western zodiac sign of Capricorn. Anyone who has the same Zodiac shower curtain I did as a kid or anyone who knows a little astrology should know that Capricorn is depicted as like a a mer-goat. Like he has the top half of a goat and then he has a fishtail. Um, And it makes utter sense in Babylonian mythology because Suhurmas means goatfish and they drew this hybrid goatfish all over the place on boundary stones that delineated uh, the land that vassals or serfs had been granted to work. The goatfish was a symbol of the Sumerian god Enki, with the, which the Babylonians called Ea. He was a god of crafts, knowledge, mischief, and, uh, weirdly, three different kinds of water. seawater, lake water, and regular water. And I am so glad I finally know why the Capricorn goat is half fish. Oh, uh, this came up a little earlier when I was talking about omens. There was an omen in Mul Appen that described the dangers of Jupiter. I didn't know this until I took an ancient astronomy class my sophomore year of college, and it makes total sense once you hear it, but um, ancient people did not know about planets. I'll delve into this a little more uh, in a talk about cosmology, the study of the properties of our universe. Thank you, NASA, for that tight little definition. But the planets just look like really bright stars if you don't know they're planets. In the northern hemisphere of Earth, all the stars look like they're spinning in a big tilted circle that follows the path of the sun. Some stars never dip below the horizon. The North Star doesn't, and the stars close to it are called circumpolar stars because they just orbit that one North Star and they don't ever drop out of sight. The planets, though, are orbiting the Sun. They move in really, really weird ways if you don't know the Sun is the center of our solar system. They were called wandering stars, or some equivalent descriptor across a lot of cultures because they changed position relative to the rest of the stars on a nightly basis. Actually, the word planet... Uh, what we call them, comes from the Greek word for wanderer. The Greeks especially tried to come up with mathematical ways to predict their movement. There's that astrology-based meme phrase when things are going bad, must be Mercury in retrograde or Mars is in retrograde, whatever. I don't remember which planet uh, is going in retrograde. I think it's Mercury, though. Um, Retrograde describes the movement of the planets when you see them from Earth, and they look like they're trucking along in the sky, and then they slow down, stop and reverse direction over a period of nights. They end up making loops in the sky if you map their position, and I'm trying to think of a way to describe this. Okay, take your finger, any finger. You can flip yourself off if you want. Or use a pen, I don't care. Start making circles in the air like your finger is a planet orbiting the sun. The sun is invisible in this metaphor though, and it helps if you make your finger orbit left to right rather than up and down. All right, so take your other finger and move it in a slower orbit outside your first finger, but still orbiting the invisible sun. Notice how your first finger planet looks like it's moving back and forth or making little loops if you're observing it from your outside finger planet. Maybe this doesn't make sense, but um, (laughs) it's the closest visual metaphor I can give without including, like, maybe I will try to find actually some animations and put this in here. This is the joy and the confusion of observing planet orbits, a.k.a. retrograde motion. Basically, retrograde motion happens because the other planets in our solar system orbit the sun but are closer to it or further away from it than we are and also move at a different rate around the sun. When a planet's orbit takes it around the sun faster than the Earth and it passes us, or if it takes a planet too long to orbit and we pass it, we see retrograde motion. Again, it makes sense if you know the sun's the center of our solar system, but we didn't really even consider that. Um, There were a couple people who had considered it, but the first major one was Galileo. And even then, people got super murdered for saying the Earth revolved around the Sun. Because, you know, we live on the Earth. It has to be the center of everything. All right, so what did we learn today? Big Bang. A good place to start because it's where everything started. I skipped 13.8 billion years of universe history to zoom us to a time when humans started recording their astronomical observations. And I tried to stick with the star catalogue mool Oppen because it's a good jumping off point to how humans used astronomy back in the day. But I got in you know, I got distracted by shit like the constellation triangulum, different kinds of calendars, solar, lunar, and lunisolar, and how to use constellations or seasons to track them, astrology, zodiac signs, goatfish, and retrograde motion. Fun stuff. These are all some pretty cool concepts and I wanted to try and fit them in early in this podcast so there's kind of a basic jumping off point of historical and astronomical knowledge. From here I'm thinking about either going into our good friend Cosmology or starting to take a peek at Galileo. I could also be persuaded to go into Triangulum some more and talk about shit like the International Astronomical Union's recent work in establishing a working group on star names, or I could talk about quasars and different types of stars. Let me know on the website if you think that would work well. You can also tweet at me at at HDInTheVoid on Twitter. I don't post there very much because I don't understand it, as well as I understand Tumblr, but I could switch there if the polls on Tumblr prove shitty. I'm also going to work on getting podcasts uploaded to iTunes or some other downloading site so folks can get it on the go. I'm kind of waiting till I have a backlog of episodes to work with, though, so bear with me there. I hope you all heard something today to get your blood pumping about astronomy and space. All of it rustles my jimmies. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to rustle some jimmies of your own. <laughs> Tune in for that one, which should be up either next week or in two weeks. I'm still working out the schedule. Once again, transcript notes are available at all one word. Fill the void dash with dash space dot Tumblr.com, along with my sources and some music credits hugs and kisses from the void hd signing off